welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akhil Amar, as always. Hello, Akhil. Hello, Andy, and I'm Akhil Amar, here with Andy Lipka, as always. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because, uh, you know, one of the things that's going on these days is that, uh, you know, the world's opening up a little bit, at least forgetting about, and how can we forget about what's going on in Ukraine um, but in terms of the COVID situation, things are opening up a little bit. And you're, you're Akil, actually having a little bit of a book tour um, as a result, um, which was sort of, you know, it's almost a year since the words that made us came out. And, uh, you know, you had the, the COVID isolation book tour. And now we're, we're getting into the real world. And as you get into the real world, you know, and, and you meet people in person, sometimes people talk about the podcast and they're saying, who is this guy, Andy Lipka? <laughs> it is true. I did an event in Charlottesville, Virginia uh, last weekend. Um, hundreds of people attended. The um, uh, welcoming address was given by the, uh, uh, the recently elected governor of Virginia, uh, uh, Mr. Yunkin. And then I was on the, the first panel immediately after that, several hundred um, attendees, conservative in, in, in the main, this is a Federal Society event. Um, uh, our audience, if they are interested in seeing it, uh, can see that event. And I was also at, at a couple of other panels. They're all on YouTube. Um, but dozens of people actually came up to me uh, from people in high school at, at one end to, to very, very senior citizens at the other, someone who introduced himself as the, the oldest law student ever. I think he, he had just turned 80. Um, and, and a whole bunch of them, Andy, um, asked about the podcast, and most of them actually asked about you. <laughs> well, they, they probably think they can, can do it better, and they want the job, so <laughs> that's probably No, they I'm actually like. are amazed <laughs> that this guy who's not a law, lawyer, you know, uh, puts me through my paces. Well, it's, it's a pleasure, and uh, of course, we're, you know, we live in a time where there's quite a lot of interest in the Constitution. And so things come up from week to week that provide grist for our mill. Last week, we briefly mentioned uh, the nomination of Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. And of course, we spent a lot of time talking about the passing of, of the great Walter Dellinger. And that led into a discussion of, uh, of role models. And we, made, we promised, we teased um, that uh, the audience would hear more about, about role models. Uh, that that were important in your life and remain so, um, and of course, what well, was a Dellinger was one, and you've mentioned Charles Black and Telford Taylor. So today we're going to talk a little bit about Charles Black, and of course, you know these are Trojan horses because it's not just that we're talking about why they were a role model for you, although that's an interesting question. But I think the very fact that they were implies that they had a lot of important contributions in the field of constitutional law, and therefore our audience would be interested in learning about them and hearing about them from that point of view, in addition to why they had a particular influence on you. And as it turns out, just as Walter Dellinger's passing um, actually transitioned naturally, uh, or the story of his passing, into um, uh, some points about Katenji Brown-Jackson, because his last major piece of writing for the New York Times was an op-ed all about um, Biden's approach to filling the Supreme Court vacancy, Biden's promise 
to fit, uh, fill the vacancy with a, a black woman who it turns out we now know um, uh, is Kenenji is Brown Jackson. So too, the story of, of Charles Black, who wasn't just my hero and role model, um, but Walter Dellinger's and Philip Bobbitt's and Bruce Ackerman's and John Hart Ely's and, and many others to boot, um, the story of Charles Black actually has a very, very direct connection to uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, as as uh, I think we we will also talk about. Yes, we'll see how uh, you know these uh, commonality of names. I think sort of you know you have Ketanji Brown Jackson, you have Brown versus Board, which goes to Charles Black, and then we have Linda Greenhouse that gets somehow so. <laughs> Oh, so yes. it's a rainbow. Yeah, so yes. so we, we, we are going to talk about Linda Greenhouse, actually, who had a really interesting, one of her best, I would say, um, pieces, a really interesting piece um, in the New York Times, all about Ketanji Brown Jackson, uh, the first, who will be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. And in the course of discussing that, Linda talked about the first black on the court, Thurgood Marshall, who was um, very close to Charles Black, um, and the first woman on the court, Senator Day O'Connor's. The first black woman will be Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and Linda talks about the first woman and the first black, um, O'Connor and Thurgood Marshall. But our audience today is going to hear the story of Charles Black, whose story, uh, whose life story uh, was intimately intertwined with the story of Thurgood Marshall and the Brown versus Board of Education's case. Yes, speaking of Brown and and all the, the interesting um, harmonies and, and, and interconnections here. Yes, and well, even Hugo Black will find his way in. Yeah, so, as always, when, yes. another one of my heroes. So um, you know, we're going to hear about um, Charles Black through his own words at one point, but why don't you give me a sentence or two of your words that come to mind when? If, if you were going to talk to someone very briefly, if they said to you, what, what's great about, about uh, Charles Black, what would you say? Um, and our audience will see what I did say to the New York Times when Charles Black passed away in 2001. I was honored to be, have some of my words about Charles appear in the obituary in the paper of record, um, uh, which is how it sees itself, um, the New York Times. So uh, Charles Black had a distinctive connection to New York City. He lived there for many years. He, he taught at Columbia at the beginning of his law career. He taught at Columbia at the end of his law career. His wife, Barbara Ehrenstein Black, was the first um, uh, woman dean of the Columbia Law School. Um, in uh, New York City. She had, she was a graduate of Columbia. She was one of his students, actually, um, at uh, when he started um, his teaching career at Columbia. She tells a lovely story in which the very first word she um, said to Charles um, was unprepared. <laughs> um, uh, um, and, and she was my teacher. Um, my very first week of Yale College, starting my very first a day of uh, uh, in, in the classroom of Yale College, my first semester, she was my American history teacher. And then I had her again um, in law school for American um, legal history. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and Charles, even before uh, being on the Columbia Law faculty, was a lawyer in New York City. So, so uh, uh, Charles was very uh, connected to New York, was a New Yorker, and he's a national figure also, 
Uh, so, but it was absolutely fitting and appropriate that uh, the New York Times um, had a major um, obituary um, when when Charles passed in 2001, and I was um, in, uh, interviewed um, in part because, as our audience will also hear, um, there was a sense in which I was um, hired to um, to fill a vacancy in at Yale Law School that was created by Charles Black's mandatory retirement at. Yale. Charles taught an undergraduate course at Yale College that I teach today. So I stand in his shoes in various ways. So, so I actually had to choose some words earlier on. Uh, earlier on, uh, answer a question somewhat similar to when you're you're asking me, um, Andy. When the New York Times said, "You know, how do you, how would you sum up um, Charles Black?" Let me read to our audience um, just one of my passages um, in in this obit. Here's the passage. He was my hero. So many of the great moral issues of the 20th century seem clear in retrospect, but were quite controversial at the time. He had the moral courage to go against his race, his class, his social circle. Here's what I meant by that. That's a a direct quote. Charles Black um, was raised in Texas, a white man, um, white, a Gentile, will um, eventually become, uh, um, he was a prodigy. Uh, He started college at the age of 16 um, at the University of Texas. So he's a product of a very segregated South, a product of white culture in a very segregated South, white Christian culture, Um, will eventually find his way um, to the East Coast. Um, uh, He's doing a master's degree at Yale and law degree um, at Yale, and then eventually um, uh, becoming a New York lawyer, starting out his um, teaching career at uh, the Columbia Law School. Charles Black, in the early 1950s, in New York City, um, was the only Southern white Gentile lawyer who um, uh, joined Thurgood Marshall's team to uh, challenge uh, uh, segregation in the famous decisions that would become Brown versus Board of Education. So that's what I, I meant when I said um, Thurgood Marshall was the, um, the, the who would later become the first uh, black on the United States Supreme Court, of course, um, was at the time in the early 1950s, the uh, head lawyer for the, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. He very famously litigated and won the Brown versus Board of Education decision. The lawyer on the other side was a very famous lawyer named John W. Davis, founder of a great New York law firm, Davis Polk. Uh, John W. Davis had, I think, been the Democratic nominee for the vice presidency um, uh, many years before. Um, and Charles Black actually had, well, had been a young associate at that very law firm, Davis Polk. But by the early 1950s, so he's going against you know, the former founder and head partner of the firm that he had um, been, at which he had been a a junior legal associate um, and going against basically his social circle as a, you know, so so to speak, um, the the people that, 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 the culture that produced him in Texas, Southern segregated white Christian culture that, that produced a young Charles Black. He's going against all of that when he casts his lot with Thurgood Marshall and says, segregation is wrong, it's unconstitutional, I'm going to help this black man defeat 
segregation in my region in, in, you know, in, in, in my homeland, the Southland. Wow. That's moral courage. And, you know, we now see it was on the right side of the law and the right side of history. But at the time, of course, the case law is Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, And um, which says separate, but equal is perfectly okay. So Charles Black and Thurgood Marshall are going to have to go against precedent you see um in order to to prevail so now you see all sorts of interesting connections to uh, some of our earlier episodes and um, where we talked about how to think about precedent when if it's wrong speaking of connection to our earlier episodes uh, we had uh, professor john witt on as a guest um in one of our earlier episodes uh, when we were talking about lynching and uh professor witt is writing a uh, a book about the history of the backstory to Brown versus Board, including the, the Garland Fund, which was a, a foundation that, that financed uh, a lot of the cases that wound up in, with uh, Brown versus Board. And I know uh, he's got he, some very interesting work on that. He, he has done great work. And of course, he did appear on our podcast. And he himself, like Akhil Amar, like uh, Charles Black, um, um, actually has spent most of his, his life at, at two places, Columbia and Yale. Um, John Witt went to Yale College, went to Yale Law School, where he, he was my student. He did his major piece of legal writing under my supervision. Um, he published it. I think he might have even published in the Texas Law Review. In fact, would be should be particularly poetic. Um, and then started his career, as did Charles Black, at Columbia, and then came to Yale. And another person um, who has this Columbia-Yale uh, 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 back and forth is um, Bruce Ackerman, who early on was at Yale um, at law school, and then actually went to Columbia, um, and then came back um, to Yale. And um, um, Ackerman, who was my teacher, is a Sterling professor of, of law at Yale. Black was a Sterling professor of law at Yale. I'm a Sterling professor of law at Yale. So, so, and 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 why am I telling the reader, or the our audience, all this? Because it's it is a reminder, actually that um, uh, Yale is, frankly, um, in uh, the orbit of New York City. Um, um, We um, are at the outer uh, periphery of the New York City commuter um, catchment basin. You know, you have basically Princeton at one end. You can take um, uh, a commuter railroad in from Princeton and get to Manhattan. And New Haven at the other end, you can take Metro North back and forth. Uh, there are all sorts of really interesting connections between Columbia in particular um, and Yale because, because of, of, of that geographic proximity um, and intellectual proximity. Theatrical proximity, right? Used to have, yeah. uh, you know, plays used to open in New Haven uh, for preview and so forth. The in King and I, um, mm-hmm. absolutely. This is where Off-Broadway started. And I'll tell you a really interesting story about Charles Black, who actually was a thespian, who appeared in actually a Robert Brewstein uh, production of Julius Caesar. Um, um, he p- played the role of Cicero. And Brewstein was a very, very distinguished director, head of Yale rep, but, but also with real um, uh, credibility um, with um, the heavyweights on Broadway. Okay, so uh, so so, where do you think you the story of of Charles Black and Akhil Amar begins? That story begins 
on my first day of Yale College. I arrive on my 18th birthday site unseen. Um, and the next day, um, I start shopping for classes. Andy, you and I love this uh, Yale tradition called shopping period, where you can check out all sorts of classes early on and then decide, and this is my very first semester. And, and in, in high school, you don't get to do that, actually. You just have to sign up for your courses and you're assigned. But wow, in college, you actually get to sit in um, f- uh, on them for the first week and, and, and then finalize your schedule. So how cool was that? Day one, I sit in on American history, the, the basic survey class in American history, because uh, I'm interested in history. And who's my teacher? Her name is Barbara Black. Um, and um, uh, I, later on, and so when I show up at Yale Law School, um, uh, uh, four years, uh, excuse me, five years later, um, I, um, I didn't know who Charles Black was. But I, um, so I've been told he's Barbara Black's spouse. Now that is true, and Barbara Black will go on to become, as I said, the first woman dean of the Columbia Law School. But at the time, he was this towering legal figure. But I had never heard of him because I hadn't been to law school yet. Um, so I knew him as Barbara Black's spouse, just as Guido Calabresi, another Sterling professor of law, one of my mentors, um, clerked for for Hugo Black. It's a very small world, um, and Hugo Black and Charles Black had all sorts of interesting intellectual similarities. They, similarities. they were Southern white progressives um, as, uh, or liberals, um, as was Walter Dellinger, as is um, uh, Philip Bobbitt. Um, uh, and, um, and Guido Calabresi is this renowned, preeminent legal scholar, but I didn't know who he was, except, oh, I know he's Steve Calabresi's uncle, because Steve Calabresi was a, a fellow student of mine. So, so I arrive at Yale Law School thinking Charles Black is Barbara Black's spouse, and Guido Calabresi, <laughs> Steve Calabresi's uncle, and these are all true. These are true things, but but it's a slightly odd view of the world if you actually know something about law. Yeah, and it's like Akil Lamar is the is Andy Lepko's co-host. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, but I know nothing about law when I show up at law school. Um, um, but it turns out um, I do gravitate in law school to Guido Calabresi and. Uh, Charles Black, and here's why I do. And it's the same reason I gravitated to certain people at Yale College, because um, they were they were compelling um, uh, professors. And now I can tell you what, what a, a real professor is. A, prof- a real professor is someone who professes the truth as he or she understands it. I do not believe in general that there's um, um, a trade-off between teaching and scholarship. I think there's generally a synergy between them. And the, the, the most serious scholars are also, on average, among the most interesting um, classroom professors because they actually have something to say. Um, and um, Charles was not, in fact, um, uh, many of my classmates didn't understand um, Charles's greatness because they, they just kind of missed it. Um, and, he, and he wasn't um, as pyrotechnic um, a performer in the classroom as um, uh, were several others but but um, if you knew what you were looking for he um, you know he had um, a, an awful lot of deep ideas to communicate he was in my view a um, a more gifted writer um, than he was an electric uh, classroom performer uh, and so I mainly experienced Charles as a student 
on the page rather than um, in the class. Mm. Um, but his writings profoundly um, shaped my ideas about what constitutional law uh, um, is and, and what, it, what it can be at its best, what it should be, how to do constitutional law, how to think constitutional law, how to argue constitutional law, um, how, how to write constitutional law. And what was Charles Black's philosophy on those matters? What was his, what was the essence of what he taught you? Very few constitutional scholars, um, some constitutional scholars, they, you, know, you know, the best ones have specific substantive ideas, their theory of this case or that clause um, or um, uh, this uh, larger um, idea. Fine. Okay. Um, but almost, but only a handful of constitutional scholars um, actually uh, have something really distinctive in particular about how to do constitutional law, about method as well as substance. Um, uh, and, and Charles had a distinctive method um, that's a- associated with him. Um, and as I said, I can think of maybe only six or seven really prominent constitutional law professors who have made important contributions on method above and beyond substance. Now, one is, um, I'll tell you about Black in a minute, but one is um, Black's protege that our audience is very familiar with, another Texas white Christian um, uh, uh, liberal progressive, Philip Bobbitt. Um, Bobbitt is, in fact, Charles Black's uh, a teach, uh, that uh, when Charles Black teaches an undergraduate course in American Constitutional Law, Political Science 233, the course that I now teach, um, uh, in the 1970s, the teaching assistant for that course was a young Philip Bobbitt. Bob was very influenced by Black, and Bobbitt um, has made important contributions about constitutional method. He has reminded us, Bobbitt has, that there are different ways of making constitutional arguments. You can make an argument based on text, the plain meaning of the words. You can make an argument based on the original intent or the original meaning, um, the the history at the time a certain set of ideas were actually, and and words were were put into the constitution. Originalism in a certain historical argument, but a certain kind of history, the history associated with the adoption of constitutional text or its amendment. You can make an argument, and this is going to be Charles's distinctive um, um, a trademark uh, method, based on the structure of the Constitution as a whole, its architecture. Um, uh, when we talk about things like federalism, well, there's no word in the Constitution that says federalism. It's this, uh, an architectural theme of the document. Separation of powers, checks and balances, rule of law, popular sovereignty, representation. These are structural ideas associated most of all with Charles Black, but Bobbitt is theorizing all the methods. So he says, Bobbitt's important book, Constitutional Fate, says, ah, there are several paradigmatic methods of doing constitutional law techniques, and they're not the same. They actually, each has its own distinctive take on, on, on the project of constitutional argumentation, text, history, structure, precedent, or doctrine. And precedent, you see, can be intention. With text that we had three episodes on that. So Bobbitt's deep idea is 
that there are multiple, um, he calls them modalities, methods of constitutional interpretation. And in any given situation, um, it's possible they conflict. Often they converge, they, they um, point in the same direction, but sometimes they conflict. And when they do, um, that's um, a particularly, that, that often makes for a particularly hard constitutional case. Amar comes along and says, oh, here's the proper way to prioritize or um, the, the, the relationship or the proper way to conceive the relationship between, let's say, um, text, history, and structure on the one side and precedent on the other. Precedent in general should yield um, uh, if the Constitution really, quote-unquote, means X. Um, uh, if the precedent says something else, um, the precedent should, in general, be um, uh, subordinated to what the Constitution itself rightly understood really means, really being text, history, and structure. So Bobbitt comes along and says there are these different methods. Black, like Bobbitt, is really special because in addition to substantive ideas, uh, um, government uh, segregation, racial segregation, is clearly unconstitutional. So that's a substantive idea. Black comes along and says there's a distinctive method that has been underattended to and very powerful. Um, it's the method of structure. We, um, he says people have been paying too much attention to textual argument, this word or that word. That's all well and good. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but often structural argument is more elegant and powerful. And Black again and again exemplified that with beautiful applications and illustrations. Um, and um, uh, to repeat, only a handful of constitutional scholars are, are, are associated with a distinctive way of doing constitutional law. Lots of constitutional laws have substantive ideas, but very few have um, made distinctive contributions to the method of constitutional interpretation and analysis. Now, when you've talked about these, these different methods, um, so a few things come to mind, having listened to most of the podcast since I was there, <laughs> um, that uh, a few themes that, that have come up, um, and I'd be interested to hear where you feel they, they fit into this these schemas, either the schema of structure or the schema of various uh, approaches to interpretation um, or arguments, types of arguments that Philip Bobbitt uh, lays out. So one is um, the notion uh, that we were talking about last week uh, that John Hart Ely was talking about of uh, about democracy um, being... Now, is that a structural argument? Yes, yes. Yes, because it's no, not a single word. He says it's a theme of the whole, you know, you know, Churchill, you know, very famously talked about, you know, uh, putting that the sort of lacks a theme, okay? The Constitution has several themes. Um, and representation, uh, um, popular sovereignty, representation, democracy, republicanism, self-government, those are slightly distinct ideas, but those would all be structural ideas. They're not the same. They're different than, say, states' rights or nationalism or federalism. That's another kind of cluster of structural arguments. Yet another would be checks and balances or separation of powers. Are those the same idea? Are there slightly different ways of talking about the fact that there are three branches? We, we've talked about departmentalism. That's a structural idea. So, yes, democracy would be a structural idea, and Charles 
Black was very much an influence for John Hart Ely. And Ely says that in the book at one key passage. He says, I've been very influenced by Charles Black's book called, it's a short little book. It's three lectures, three one-hour lectures um, that, that, that he gave. And, and, the, and it's called Structure and Relationship in Constitutional Law. Now, you know, there's a, an article that you wrote that I've that we've come back to a few times that I found very compelling. And it seems to me that it might be a way to move a little bit beyond sort of the, the limits of structure or the limits of saying text history and structure. And that's your article on intertextualism. Intertextualism. So I am trying to enter the pantheon, you see, of the, the small, small club of constitutional scholars that have said something distinctive about method, along with making substantive arguments. So Charles Black has structural argument, you see. Philip Bobbitt actually helps us identify another kind of argument that he called ethical argument, which is really about the spirit of of the the American people, our our traditions, our mores, our, 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 our broader culture, constitutional culture above and beyond the words of the of the constitution it's um the um it's architecture it's um original um um history um the precedents um interpreting it so so black comes along and and really highlights the significance of structural argument Bobbitt comes along and and says, well, there's a whole family of constitutional arguments, um, different methods, and here's one that has been underattended to um, ethical, what he calls ethical argument, um, um, which isn't moral argument, but about the the spirit, the ethos um, of of, of a a people, a constitutional culture. I want to join this small um, club of, of scholars who have made methodological contributions. So I coin a phrase in neologism, um, intratextualism, which is kind of halfway between text and structure. It, it, um, it highlights the fact that certain word patterns recur in the document itself. So it's textual, I'm looking at the words, but it's structural in a way, it's looking at sort of word patterns. The phrase, for example, the right to vote appears five times in the Constitution. There are three clauses that say the blank power shall be vested. That's the first sentence of Article 1, Article 2, Article 3. So is this structural argument? Is this textual argument? Is this maybe you know, a blend of them, an interesting one? So, so that's my article, intratextualism, and it's very much inspired by Bobbitt and Black. And because, because I want to you know, uh, um, have a method associated with, with me, um, as did um, Charles and as does um, Philip. Well, I don't, I think I don't think you should sell yourself short that you that you just like come up with this cute little, you know, method. I think it actually is important. I mean, certainly as a layman, it's influenced me in my thinking about the Constitution. All of this is by way of um, reminding our um, audience um, that uh, um, uh, people who try to 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 do to to, uh, to um, do original um, work of of one sort or another um, are building on um, uh, their predecessors. They're standing on other people's shoulders. That that I can't write um, 
a book without reading lots of other books that I'm trying to figure out which um, scholars have had the most um, uh, impact on the field and, and why, and how might I then have, you know, a positive impact on the field. Now you mentioned that Charles Black, um, you know, kind of, you said he went against his class and his, and so forth when he, when he, uh, particularly when he was involved with Brown, did he have uh, repercussions that you're aware of? I mean, it, it's, it's, you can understand where it took courage to do it, but what was the outcome regarding his career, his life, his, you know, did, do you feel that he, that he suffered for it or he was more or less just vindicated and, and uh, went forward with, uh, with glory? Hugo Black, another um, uh, Southern white Christian liberal, no relation to Charles Black, but they had an intellectual kinship um, suffered uh, significantly. Hugo Black was the only deep Southerner um, on the, the court um, that unanimously decided Brown versus Board of Education. There were people from the peripheral South, um, from Kentucky, um, from Texas, but Hugo Black was from Alabama. Uh, the Alabama legislature passed a law, it was really enforceable probably, but but um, uh, nevertheless, they they passed, and I think it was pretty clearly unconstitutional, a bill of attainder, um, saying that black couldn't be buried in the state of Alabama. Um, this is the former senator, United States senator from Alabama. Um, so um, I'm going to read you um, uh, uh, in today's uh, uh, podcast a short uh, piece that that uh, uh, Charles Black himself wrote in which you're going to hear a little bit about how he is breaking with um, um, his um, peeps, you know, the, the culture that, 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 that produced him. Um, and so um, he chose his path and it was a righteous one. Um, uh, it was correct in law, in my view, and, and, and morally admirable um, but yes, I'm sure it cost him all sorts of um, um, friendships and, and, and relationships because um, he he was breaking um, with and calling out, um, condemning uh, um, major um, portions of the culture that produced him. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm familiar with the piece you're going to read, and one th- and you know maybe we should go ahead and do it. But I think that. Um... One thing that that came across for me from that piece was that he felt a need to defend Brown uh, on legal and moral grounds. So actually, I'm going to read from two pieces. The first Mm -hmm. one is going to be a piece in the Yale Law Journal that I think was the toweringly influential and important early defense of Brown versus Board of Education, which had received criticism from a very um, well-respected law professor um, in a very prominent um, publication. Herbert Wexler, whom we've talked about before on this podcast, um, very, very well-respected scholar. The Hart and Wexler casebook to this day is the single most cited casebook by the United States Supreme Court. The current Herbert Wexler professor at Columbia is Philip Bobbitt, Herbert Rexler has a famous article on 
neutral principles in constitutional law in which he wonders aloud about Brown versus Board of Education because he worries that it's kind of special pleading for one race. And is that sort of legally right and proper? He's saying, gee, um, blacks want to associate with whites, but whites don't want to associate with blacks. And why does the blacks freedom of association somehow trump the whites desire not to um, associate with blacks? That's how Wexler frames the whole thing. And Herbert Wexler is very well respected. And Charles Black comes along and says, you've missed it completely. Um, And the article in the law journal is called the lawfulness of the segregation decision. So I'm going to read you a few passages from that. That's um, uh, the, the, the piece appears in either 1959 or 1960. That's Charles Black's uh, canonical law review defense of Brown versus Board of Education against his former Columbia colleague, Herbert Wexler. Um, And then I'll read you a later uh, piece that Black wrote, kind of telling autobiographically the story of what kind of led him Uh, away from his Texas roots, his white Christian um, segregationist Texas roots, toward um, African Americans, toward a Thurgood Marshall, toward Brown versus Board of Education. Um, And and, and um, it's a really interesting kind of autobiographical piece about um, Black's life journey. Um, uh, I maybe should also mention since I, uh, I, I keep saying Christian, um, um, his wife, Barbara Black, um, was born Barbara Ehrenstein. So um, he, he marries a Jewish woman. So as people listen to, to you, let's talk about the first piece. As they, as they listen to you read the piece, what should they be listening for? Should they be listening for the, the style, the legal argumentation, the, uh, is the character of the man come through? What, you know, all, what? all of the above, um, ethos, pathos, um, and logos. His character, his logic, um, his appeals to um, your heart. Um, all three to your to your brain, to your heart, and oh, he he. he there's a there's a community between uh, of character that he wants to establish between um, uh, you and him. Also, all three. He's. He's a brilliant lawyer, as we saw uh, uh, Walter Dellinger um, was in um, his parting words to America in that op-ed. So I'm just going to read a few excerpts, short um, excerpts, from the lawfulness of the segregation decisions, um, which appeared in the night, actually 1960, um, uh, Yale Law Journal. Um, and um, we'll, we'll put up the whole piece, which is pretty short on um, the, the show notes. And, and just a reminder that our show notes, they can't be found on Apple Podcasts directly or, or Google Podcasts. You have to go to the website, which is akilamore.com slash podcast hyphen two. Or just go to akilamore.com and click on any of the many links for America's Constitution and you'll find it. Here's his first sentence. Um, beautifully done. And Black was a, um, a published poet. He is a real stylist. He, he studied um, classical literature. His master's is in literature um, before he goes to law school. 
if the cases outlawing segregation, that is Brown and, and the companion cases, if the cases outlawing segregation were wrongly decided, then they ought to be overruled. I don't know. It's kind of a stenchy line. <laughs> it's strong. Okay. It's, but, but here's what he's saying. He, yes, he is saying text history and structure should trump precedent. You see, listen, if, if, if Herbert Wexler is really right, then that has consequences. So this isn't just academic theorizing. If Brown lacks proper constitutional foundations, um, we should toss it overboard. And he says, oh, and we will, because in the long run, he goes on to say in this paragraph, our um, legal culture uh, tosses overboard um, important decisions that are really inconsistent with first principles. Um, so he's with me, basically, yes, that's why you're, you, you were um, joking about Stenchy. He's taking a strong position on the relationship between text history and structure, originalism on the one hand, and precedent saying our fidelity should be to the Constitution. So if the precedents are wrong, we should overrule them. If, if Brown really lacks pr- proper constitutional foundations, we should toss it over. And, and he's grabbing me by the throat because, of course, he believes the exact opposite, but he's just stating forcefully, here's, here's what we're talking about here. Two paragraphs later, he says, you know, my liminal difficulty, and, 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 and that's... Um, uh, very legalistic. Um, uh, uh, when you make a motion in limine, it means sort of at the threshold. So my threshold difficulty is rhetorical, or perhaps more accurately, one of fashion. Simplicity is out of fashion, and the basic scheme of reasoning on which these cases can be justified is awkwardly simple. First, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment should be read as saying that the Negro race as such, is not to be significantly disadvantaged by the laws of the states. Secondly, segregation is a massive intentional disadvantaging of the Negro race, as such, by state law. No subtlety at all. Yet I cannot disabuse myself of the idea that 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 is really all there is to the segregation cases. Um, you know, like major premise, minor premise. It's just a, it's just a person, and and he's right. Uh, you know, it's just it's beautiful, and he just says it with like, what part of this do you not understand, Herbert Wexler? Okay, um, uh, that um, the equal protection clause says basically the, the government shouldn't be just you know basically um, seeking to harm um, blacks as such, and that's what segregation is all about. It's a massive. That I mean, uh, I think Wexler perhaps agrees with the major premise, but doesn't understand the minor premise, which is to just to repeat that um, segregation. This is the key: is a massive, intentional disadvantaging of the Negro race as such by state law. Okay, now okay, he goes on to prove it, and and he proves it in part as a Southerner saying, listen, I know this system. Um, I grew up in it. Let's, let's um, call, um, let, 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 let's be honest about all of this. Okay. So um, here are just two or three um, passages um, uh, uh, from this extraordinary article. Um, Does segregation offend against equality? 
Equality, like all general concepts, has marginal areas where philosophic difficulties are encountered. But if a whole race of people finds itself confined within a system which is set up and continued for the very purpose of keeping it in an inferior station, and if the question is then solemnly propounded whether such a race is being treated equally, in quotes, I think we ought to exercise one of the sovereign prerogatives of philosophers, that of laughter. <laughs> um, okay. I was raised in the South, in a Texas city where the pattern of segregation was firmly fixed. I'm sure it never occurred to anyone, white or colored, to question its meaning. Um, uh, first, of course, there's history. I'm, I'm skipping that, uh, uh, just for, you know, uh, uh, just to, to, to give you some of the, 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 the greatest tips of, of this uh, extraordinary piece. First, of course, is history. Segregation in the South comes down in apostolic succession from slavery in the Dred Scott case. The South fought to keep slavery and lost. Then it tried the Black Codes and lost. Then it looked around for something else and found segregation. The movement for segregation was an integral part of the movement to maintain and further white supremacy. Okay, then he goes on. Um, here are a few uh, more passages. Um, when you are in Lee's, Leeville and hear someone say Leeville High, you know he has reference to the white high school. The Negro school will be called something else, Carver High perhaps, or Lincoln High, to our shame. That is what you would expect when one race forces a segregated position on another. And that is what you get. Here's another passage. Separate but equal facilities are almost never really equal. Sometimes this concerns small things. If the white men's room has mixing hot and cold taps, the colored men's room will likely have separate taps. It is always the back, the back of the bus for the Negroes. Lincoln Beach will rarely, if ever, be as good as the regular beach. Further arguments could be piled on top of one another. We have here to do with the most conspicuous characteristics of a whole regional culture. It is actionable defamation in the South to call a white man a Negro. A small proportion of Negro blood puts one in the inferior race for segregation purposes. This is the way one deals with a taint, such as carcinogen in cranberries. So um, there's just such directness and moral clarity and, and passion and power. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, uh, Herbert Wexler, for example, in his piece, it's so abstract, he says, well, um, um, when I was forced to have lunch um, with uh, this black attorney, Charles Hamilton Houston, who was Thurgood Marshall's um, uh, uh, teacher, his, his mentor, when I, Herbert Wexler, you know, had to have lunch with Charles Hamilton Houston in Union Station in D.C., that was an, because that was like the only place that, where we could uh, uh, eat together. That hurt me as much as it hurt Charles Hamilton Houston. And Charles Black is saying, okay, that's an admirable moral thought, um, Professor Wexler, but really 
It's not remotely true because you get to eat anywhere and he can only eat at that one place. So, um, so what are you talking about? And how was that piece received? Um, it was um, like a jolt of electricity. Now, now it's 1960. I'm, I'm a year and a half old at the time. So I actually am not reporting this from firsthand observation, but the, the traditions that have been handed down to me, the stories I've been told are that that piece just had an absolutely electric impact. Um, it's short, it's, it's, it's punchy, um, and it's persuasive. It's so um, direct, honest, compelling, clean, clear. It's, it's, it's beautifully done. I have to tell you, when I read it as a layman, you know, I found it to be beautifully written um, and passionate for sure. Um, and it seemed to have an internally consistent argument, but it did seem to lack a little bit of, it, it seemed to assert certain things as by saying, you know, of course, this is the way it is. And in that, I, I, I actually found myself a little bit disappointed in it as being, you know, the, a definitive article, uh, article, especially in this day and age, uh, now, you know, when we have so many people saying, you know, I'm not even going to discuss your argument because it's, you know, it so violates my, what I know deep down to be true. Uh, and that was uh, a criticism um, that uh, others have level. Um, truth be told, I think he left a little bit of space for the next generation um someone like me to come along and try to, to um, just um, uh, firm up a little bit of uh, uh, provide a little bit more um, history and, and, and documentation um, uh, to, to, to undergird um, and buttress um, uh, the pillars of, of his argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with making a leap forward by presenting an argument much better than what had been presented in the past even if it's not the, the be-all and end-all of other arguments, people can refine it, improve upon it, you know, and so forth. Okay, so, and now the other piece? Um, this is the story of Charles Black, and this one I'm just going to read start to finish. And Andy, you know, we didn't know that three weeks ago that we were this is gonna, was going to be our, our series for um, uh, February, March, um, but as you're already telling your audience, I've shared with you these pieces um, years ago, many, or at least many months ago, because I wanted you to see what I consider, you know, um, some of the, just the, the, the best examples of writing by um, a, a modern lawyer and they're, they're short. So we'll put them up um, on the show notes. This one is the, the story of black's own reflections on his life. It's, it'll take maybe 15 minutes to read, but um, uh, uh, I promise uh, our audience members, if you stick with me, um, you won't regret it. It's a piece called My World with Louis Armstrong by Charles Black. Um, and um, this uh, appeared in 1979. So now, um, as it were, the race has been won, um, almost everyone agrees with the black position um, uh, in, in the Thurgood Marshall position in Brown versus Board of Education. Our audience needs to remember that even though it was unanimous 
1954 on this United States Supreme Court, um, it was not unanimous in the culture. Lots of conservatives pushed back hard against it. The so-called Southern Manifesto was an, a, a, a fiercely anti-Brown statement signed by every United States senator from the former Confederacy except um, three people. Estes Kefauver from ten, and they were all from the peripheral South. Two from Tennessee, one from Texas. No, so all the Deep South senators from Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia and what have you, um, the South Carolina um, signed this. Um, Estes Kefauver doesn't sign it. He's a senator from Tennessee. He wants to be the vice presidential running mate of Adlai Stevenson in 1956 and gets the position nosing out Jack Kennedy, who also wanted it. Um, Al Gore Sr., um, who, you know, if he himself doesn't want the vice presidency, at least wants someone named Al Gore, wants his son to to have that possibility later on. Uh, So, again, a kind of a a moderate Southerner, attentive um, to um, Yankee sentiment um, uh, from the peripheral South. And, um, of course, Lyndon Johnson. Um, and Robert Cairo tells the story of Lyndon Johnson's national ambitions. He's from Texas. Um, Philip Bobbitt's uncle, Lyndon Johnson is, was. So um, Bobbitt's mother was Lyndon Johnson's um, sister, Rebecca. Um, and so those are the only senators from the entire former Confederacy who do not sign the Southern Manifesto. So, so Brown was intensely controversial at the time. It's aged very well. Um, and, and, and Black is now looking back on his life and telling the, the story of, of how he came to basically repudiate the culture that, that produced him. Um, and the piece to repeat is My World with Louis Armstrong, 1979. In the middle of May 1955, at the Savoy Ballroom on Lenox Avenue in Harlem, a philanthropic organization in the black community gave reception in honor of the 30 or so lawyers who had worked on the case of Brown v. Board of Education, a 1954 Supreme Court decision that declared school segregation unlawful and thus began the end of the old Southern racist regime. I, by the grace of somebody or something, was there. Thurgood lined us all up in front of the orchestra to receive the applause of the whole crowd, Margaret Truman, Averill Harriman, everybody. I turned and looked a little wistfully at the trumpet player in the orchestra, a young black. I wonder, I thought, whether I wouldn't rather have been honored in the Savoy Ballroom for trumpet playing. Then I heard Thurgood moving down the line. Charlie Duncan, and next over there is Charlie Black, a white man from Texas, who's been with us all the way. All the way. Yes, I guess so, if you can say that about something without beginning or end. I looked at Barbara out at our table. No knight reaching to take the garland of victory ever saw eyes more glowing than hers as they fixed mine. We had been married just over a year. The children were still waiting to be born. Then it was all over. Margaret Truman had to go and Averill Harriman and we said goodbye to Charlie Duncan and to Thurgood and took a taxi back to our apartment at 300 West 109th Street near Columbia, 
where I still taught and where Barbara was finishing, was just finishing law school. We were quiet on the elevator, quiet into the vestibule, the living room. I went over to the record player and put on Louis' Savoy Blues, the 1928 Oka. It was um, 28 years old then. Now it's 50 years old. I listened to it all the way through. Barbara stood silent behind me. When it was over, I stayed still a moment. Then I turned to her and said, well, baby, thank God. That's one thing I didn't go back on. And by the way, I'm just interpreting here. It's Savoy Blues. And remember, he had been at the Savoy Ballroom. What did I mean by that? And again, it's, it's, he says to her, well, baby, thank God. That's one thing I didn't go back on. What did I mean by that? I don't entirely know. One never knows, one never entirely knows the ways of the power of art. I know a little of the framework, a little of the rational components, but then when these are, when these are exhausted, art remains inexhaustible, un, unknowable. But I do know that playing that one record just then for the sake of remembering, was the only right thing I could do. And Andy is playing a little bit of it in the background. Yeah, that's me. And, on maybe, the and, and maybe Andy will have a little bit of a snippet of it um, also that we can put up on the show notes. Yeah. Or maybe we can do it as your out, as our outro. Mm -hmm. I never met Louis, except for a couple of handshakes at the bandstand. Yet no first meeting in my life ever had the impact on me of my first encounter with him. In September 1931, posters appeared in Austin advertising four dances, October 12 through 15, to be played by one, quote, Louis Armstrong, King of the Trumpet and his orchestra, unquote, at the old Driscoll Hotel. I was entirely ignorant of jazz and had no idea who this king might be. Hyperbole is the small coin of Billboard. But a dance at the Driscoll with lots of girls there was usually worth the 75 cents. So I went to the first one. Memory is splotchy. I don't remember the moment or exactly the process of realization. But since that evening, October 12, 1931, Louis Armstrong has been a continuing presence in my life. Now, once a year, more than halfway into the fifth decade after that night, a senior professor who can hear retirement marching, marching with audible heavy tread toward the 1931 University of Texas freshman. I present in the faculty lounge at the Yale Law School what I call my Armstrong Evening, records of the 20s and early 30s. I've done this every year since Louis died in 1971. As the students readily discern, this is in truth a memorial service, a ritual of gratitude and blessing for the soul of this man. My children come if they possibly can, dispersed as they are, for they understand. On the day Louis died, my, my, my David, then 12 and in summer camp, wrote me a letter of condolence. One way to describe the impression of that October night is to say that Louis seemed, 
as was guessed, I believe, of Paganini, under demonic possession, strengthened and guided by a daemon. Steam whistle power, lyric grace, alternated at will, even blended. Louis played mostly with his eyes closed. Just before he closed them, they seemed to have ceased to look outward, to have turned inward to the world out of which music was to flow. Years ago, I published the lines, and this is a poem that he had written that Black wrote, and the musicians sit there, ending phrases, by that slight taking in of breath. The blowing musician pushes out from the fullness of thought. He stops. There is nothing left but himself, empty except of himself, his eyes open, but his look is the look of a rock that has done what it came to do, collects and remembers itself eternally. Naked into the world, his world blazed forth. It patterned the blank of darkness, the clean bright lines it is, and he is himself, only taking breath, waiting to enter again. By that time, I had seen Louis on many occasions. I think the lines were all engendered by that first evening. Louis was 31 when I first heard him, at the height of his creativity. He was just then in the borderline, in the borderland between his two great periods, the dazzlingly inventive small band period of the Hot Five and the Hot Seven, and the first period of improvisation around popular melodies, Stardust, Chinatown, When Your Lover Has Gone. All through those years, he was letting flow from that inner space of music, things that had never before existed. He was the first genius I had ever seen. That may be a structurable part of the process that led me to the Brown case. The moment of first being and knowing oneself to be in the presence of genius is a solemn moment. It is perhaps the moment of final an indelible perception of man's utter transcendence of all else created. It is impossible to overstate the significance of a 16-year-old Southern boy's seeing genius for the first time in a black. We literally never saw a black man then in any but a servant's capacity. There were, of course, black professionals in Austin, as one later learned, but they kept to themselves out, out, out back of town, no doubt shunning humiliation. I liked most of the blacks I knew. I loved a few of them, like old Buck Green, born and raised a slave, who still plays the harmonica through my mouth, having taught me when he was 75 and I was 10. Some were honored and venerated in that paradoxical white Southern way, Buck Green again comes to mind. But genius? Fine control over total power, all height and depth, forever and ever, it simply had never entered my mind for confirming or denying conjecture that I would see this for the first time in a black man. You don't get over that. You stay young a while longer with the hesitations, the incertitudes, the affobediences to crowd pressure of the young. But you don't forget the lies real and contradict one another and simper and silliness and fade into shadow. 
but the seen truth remains. And if this was true, what happened to the rest of it? That October night, I was standing in the crowd with a good old boy from Austin High. We listened together for a long time. Then he turned to me, shook his head as if clearing it, as I'm sure he was, of an unacceptable though vague thought, and pronounced the judgment of the time and place. Quote, after all, he's nothing but a goddamn nigger. Unquote. The good old boy did not await, perhaps fearing, reply. He walked one way and I the other. Through many years, through many years now, I have felt it was just then that I started walking toward the brown case where I belonged. I realized that it was that. I realized what was that. I realized what it was that was being denied and rejected in the utterance I've quoted. And I realized repeatedly and with growing solid conviction for the next few years that the rejection was inevitable. If the premises of my childhood world were to be seen as right, and that for me, that must mean that those premises were wrong because I could not and would not make the rejection. Every person of decency in the South of those days must have had some doubts about racism, and I had mine even then, perhaps more than most. But Louis opened my eyes wide and put to me a choice. Blacks, the saying went, were all right in their place, but was was the, the place of such a of such a man and of people from which he sprung. In the months and years following, I avidly collected Louis' records. In those days, the great Ocas of the 20s were still in stock in J, the J.R. Reed Music Company on Congress Avenue, or could be ordered from open stock catalogs. You paid 75 cents a piece for recordings by Jan Garber, Guy Lombardo, Rudy Valley, but Louie on Oka, such titles as West End Blues, Knockin' on a Jug, Tight Like That, The Savoy Blues, when I heard a trumpet blowing for me, would it be had for 35 cents each, being classified as race records, though they were even then being eagerly collected by pink pigmented members of the human race in England and France. I bought a lot of them and have almost all of them yet. They're still of surprising sound quality though some have surely been played a thousand times. No material has ever been quite as good for records as the material they used then, and no engineers ever recorded Louis quite as well as the Oka engineers did. I played them at my annual service. The students, understandably, had rather hear and even see them than listen to tapes. I falter when I turn to describing these records. Music cannot be written about directly, not the feeling part of it. Yes, Skip the Gutter has a dialogue on trumpet and piano between Louis and Earl Hines. That's the finest example I know of a musical sen- of the musical sense of humor, the sense of humor purely musical, in that it uses no trick effects, no barnyard imitations, but sticks to clean musical technique alone, Olympian laughter. There have been many, well, a good many, great artists in my time. But it just happened that the one who said the most to me, the most of gaiety, the most of sadness, the most of 
high nervous excitement, the most of religion in art, the most of home, the most of that strange square root of minus one world of emotions without name was and is Louis. The artist who has played this role in my life was black. In 1957, in the early days after the Brown case, when the South was still resisting, I wrote out and published my deepest thought on the nature of the agony as it presented itself. And this is a quote. I'm going to close by telling of a dream that has formed itself through the years. As I, a Southern white by birth and training, have pondered my relations with many Negroes of Southern origin that I have known, both in the North and at home. I've noted again and again how often we laugh at the same things, how often we pronounce the same words, the same way to the amusement of our hearers, judge character in the same frame of reference, missed up at the same kinds of music. I've exchanged good evening with a Negro stranger on, the, on New Haven streets and then realized from the way he said the words, that he and I derived this universal small-town custom from the same culture. I've seen my father standing at the window of his office with a Negro he had known for a long time while they looked out in the town below and talked of buildings that used to be here and there when they were young. These and thousands of other such things have brought me to see the whole caste system of the South, the whole complex net of its census cruelties and cripplings as no mere accidental grotesquerie of history, but rather as this most hideous of errors, that prima materia of tragedy, the failure to recognize kinship. All men, to be sure, are kin, but Southern whites and Negroes are bound in a special bond. In a peculiar way, they are the same kind of people. They are happy alike. They are poor alike. Their strife is fratricidal, born of ignorance. And the tragedy itself, of course, has deepened the kinship. Indeed, it created it. My dream is simply that sight will one day clear and that each of the participants will recognize the other. But Louis has the special place of the artist of my time who uniquely instructed me, as only high art can instruct on all matters I've written of above, and who was black. How could I have been anywhere else when the Brown case was moving up? By the time I got there, I had left behind the feeling that I was struggling for justice for somebody else. I was in my own heart in an army for and with my own. But that doesn't quite reach the end of the inquiry with which I started. I came home from that party and played the Savoy Blues. Not another record, just that one. Well, I must confess there was something more direct there. Perhaps it was and is only an imagination of mine. But in the trumpet, on that record, just that one, I thought I heard something said, as a self-knowing high artist might say it, gently, without stridency or self-pity, perhaps with more pity for the more pitiable wrongdoer than for the wrong, but like this. We are being wronged, grievously, heavily, bewilderingly wronged. We don't know why or what to do. Is anyone listening? Is there anyone to come in and help us? Then there's a gentle coda, a coda unmistakably of resignation. 
I leave it up to you. Projection, more than likely. But great art invites projection, stimulates projection, cries sometimes for projection. That is a little of what Louis has meant to me. And that is what I heard in his horn, so triumphant in other places and so full of glory in the Savoy Blues of 1927. And again, I thank God that that was the one thing I didn't go back on. And for the miracle of art, and for Louis, may he rest in peace. Amen. So this is a great artist in the law, um, commenting on his own life journey, the sources of his inspiration. And I got to confess, you see, um, I'm not myself very musical. I appreciate music, but I, 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 I don't play, I don't sing. Black himself was a more accomplished musician. But in that piece, he's helping me actually uh, recognize that Oh, if I want to be the best I can be in every way, um, um, morally, spiritually, intellectually, I need to open myself up to, to other forms of excellence, to, to other forms of um, human experience. I need to open myself up to art and poetry and, and music and, and literature. I don't think it's a total coincidence. Therefore, when I start to reflect on my own life, the way he's reflecting on his that um, thanks to Neil Katyal, who's been on this podcast, um, I was absolutely um, mesmerized and transformed, dumbstruck, um, when I saw Lynn Miranda play the role of Hamilton in uh, the musical that, 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 that he himself created. I, I think um, I was much older um, than was the 16-year-old Charles Black, but I had this same you know, moment of kind of awe of being in the presence of, of a certain kind of greatness. And, and as our audience knows, Lynn is one of the dedicatees of um, my most recent book. Neil is another one. He introduced me to Lynn. Lynn's spouse, Vanessa, who has inspired me in various ways, Vanessa Nadal, is another dedicatee, as is Ron Chernow, who, who wrote the, 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 the book Hamilton, on, on which um, the musical is based. And so this podcast, you see, is an opportunity for me to think aloud about my own sources of inspiration, my own ambitions, my own life story. Um, and, and I'm seeing as, as I, as I reread black on Louis Armstrong, I'm thinking, you know what, I bet that really has influenced me in, in my, um, uh, my world with with Lynn Miranda, you know, he says he, he he'd only met Arm, Louis a couple, you know, a couple of handshakes or something. Um, I, I I I don't hang out with with Lynn Miranda, but he he has inspired me. Um, his great art, um, in the same way that Black was inspired, and who inspired him? Ron Cherna, a great historian, you know, who was probably inspired by Gordon Wood, who inspired me. Great uh, performances can inspire other people to um. Uh, aspire to greatness. You know, I think Charles Black, he may have been a talented musician, but this is not about him being a talented musician. You know, this is about um, Louis Armstrong showing him how there is complexity in music and mm -hmm. that it can, it can communicate in a variety of ways on a variety of levels 
mm-hmm. that are relevant to his life in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that, I mean, if I can be a little bit uh, abstract here, you know, I see that in some of your constitutional thinking, that there's a sterility about someone who takes the Constitution syllable by syllable, mm-hmm. you know, and there are harmonies, if, mm-hmm. if you will, yes. for themes. I think and, so. And mathematical convergences like there are mm-hmm. in music, you mm-hmm. know, and so perhaps, you know, it's not that you think, well, the Constitution is music, but still the notion that something that a great work can communicate on various levels and can have meaning in various mm-hmm. ways. And that's where you discover the real meaning, the real intent of the artist. Um, yes. I, I see that as informing your thinking. And this right back at you is why you um, uh, are such a believer in um, Ever Scholar, um, because it's interdisciplinary in both the, the its formal structure because you bring in academics from um, a different points of view, um, artists, historians, um, uh, 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 literature experts, lawyers, um, political theorists, and because the uh, the participants, the ever scholars themselves, are coming um, with rich life experiences from all sorts of different uh, niches um, who 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 are very impressive, each of them in his or her own right. And, and who kind of can, can, when we, when they start to talk together, actually see um, all, all sorts of uh, harmonies and, and, and perils. And it's why you're such a believer in the, uh, the liberal um, educational idea at the heart of a place like Yale. Um, it's, um, uh, it's again, this thought that, that, um, a, a law person can learn from a musician, and there are all sorts of um, interesting interconnect. Just as a musician might learn from a mathematician, mm-hmm. you know, and a mathematician in turn might learn from a law person. Indeed, the, and you know what? I I am involved with uh, alumni interviewing for Yale in the admissions process, and one of the things that I uh, come back to sometimes is a theme is uh, a place at Yale called the Center for Engineering, Innovation, and Design, which is a place where um, courses aren't really taught there. Courses can utilize it. But it's essentially a laboratory where anyone can go and work on a project. And the idea is there's everything there from a robotic wood shop to crayons, from an abacus to a 3D printer. Um, and the idea is that an artist would go and an uh, engineer would go and a musician would go and, uh, you know, and so forth, and they will find projects to work on together. So one of the examples I, that I tout is when a group of, of Yaleys from nothing uh, designed, built, and raced a Formula One car out of the, the Center oh, for cool. Energy Innovation. And, so. and, uh, and that's the same, you know, that's in a little bit STEMI, but it nevertheless has this deep interdisciplinary notion that you can learn from people that you seemingly have nothing in common with. And in some ways, you know, I think that that gets to themes that we've talked about where you have to listen to people that don't necessarily agree with you. And um, because it's hard to learn when somebody just repeats back to you what you already thought to be true. 
So let me actually, because I know we're, we're already running late, as we often do, um, uh, connect to uh, two of the people that we've had on our podcast um, in uh, uh, past episodes. Um, so um, because we do try to um, talk to people who um, don't always talk to each other. And, 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 and so um, uh, Ed Whalen is a critic of Linda Greenhouse. I'm going to mention both of them because we've had them both on, on, on the podcast. And Linda Greenhouse is a critic of Ed Whalen. Um, so um, how did Charles begin his discussion of the lawfulness segregation decisions on kind of Ed Whalen ground saying, gee, if the president's wrong, toss it overboard. Okay, that, that's what originalists think. Um, um, and, and we've had um, conservative originalists. I'm a liberal originalist. We have conservative originalists. We have liberal non-originalists like Linda Greenhouse. What did she say most recently? She wrote one of her best um, pieces um, uh, uh, in recent memory, in, in my view, in the New York Times, all about Katenji Brown-Jackson. Um, and, um, and Katenji Brown-Jackson, just to r- remind everyone again, is in the Thurgood Marshall tradition. Marshall was the first black on the court. She will be the first black woman on the court. Um, and of course, we, you heard, we, we just have heard the story of um, Thurgood Marshall and his relationship to, to, to Charles Black. And Linda brings um, some really distinctly um, uh, thoughtful uh, themes to this piece of hers. First, she reflects a little bit on the relationship between Sandra Day O'Connor and Thurgood Marshall, the first woman on the court, the first black on the court, their relationship between uh, the, the two of them, and reflecting on the person who will be the first black woman. So that was an interesting take um, of, of, of Linda's. Um, um, but um, Linda also um, noticed something really interesting about uh, um, uh, Katenji Brown Jackson's life story. So what's um, a, 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 that my life with Louis Armstrong saying is saying stuff that happens to you early in life can have a really big effect on you. Black was 16 years old in high school and he had this, it's, 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 it's an epiphany story. It, it's a, um, so um, what, what does Linda Greenhouse say? Contention Brown Jackson has a different um, um, experience early in life than most of the other justices. She went to public school and most of the rest of them um, uh, went to parochial school. Um, um, and, um, and I confess, I had not really focused on that before. Linda's going to see that because Linda's really interested in separation of church and state issues, um, vouchers, um, um, uh, parochial schools. Um, so, so she sees this thing that no one else, almost no one else um, ha- has noticed, which is that um, I guess seven of the current nine justices um, um, are products of, of Catholic parochial, uh, parochial school, not uh, public school. Um, and it's it's a very interesting piece about the lived experiences. I would say it's six out of eight because Breyer didn't go to Catholic school, did he? Um, you're correct. So um, uh, six out of eight, yes. Um, and uh, um, uh, and she's saying um, in this regard, Katenji Brown Jackson is like. Stephen Breyer, as in, in other regards, um, they um, uh, uh, both um, uh, ha- uh, had uh, parents who were lawyers in a school system. 
Or they they're um, they both end up at Harvard. Um, Katenji Brown Jackson, in fact, clerks for they both get Supreme Court clerkships. She ends up, in fact, clerking for none other than than Breyer himself. They both are on the sentencing commission. They're both married to medical professionals. So so um, some very interesting ob- observations about their lived experiences. And you just heard um, Black trying to reflect on his own lived experiences and how. Um, and and, and it, this is not deterministic because he's also telling a story about how he and this other kid were came from the same culture, went to the same um, uh, a concert, and had completely different reactions um, to this traumatic experience of, of actually seeing that that, that 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 black people were not as uh, their culture had described them, and I was incapable of 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 genius and greatness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says he had only seen a black person in a in a service Sir, role. Uh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and 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 and, he, and 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 so so he's not saying the same experience always generates the same um, reaction in every human being. There's free will, how we respond to these things, um, but um, but he is trying to reflect on the story of his own life, and and uh, Linda Greenhouse is trying to ask some questions about um, uh, how. Um, uh, Katenji Brown Jackson's um, early life experience might incline her to see things um, differently. So I guess my question is, are, are these the sort of questions that we should be asking when we consider whether a justice should be confirmed? You know, whether she has this, you know, life story in common with others. And, you know, it's such a, it's such a stretch, I think, to say that, uh, because of this life story, that's uh, deterministic, and she's going to therefore be like Sandra, you know, she's going to influence, really the thesis here, when you get down to it, is that, is that Sandra Day O'Connor was influenced by Thurgood Marshall, and therefore other justices on the court may be influenced by Katenji Brown-Jackson. So and it's interesting this... because, because, you know, she's the, the junior, and as, and, but O'Connor was the junior, not Thurgood Marshall, you know, so, so it, it's actually reversing the, 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 the role here. So here's what I would say, and I think this maybe then completes um, uh, uh, the circle for, for this episode. What did I tell you about Charles Black, that he actually had a method of constitutional interpretation? Um, and um, an originalism is a method, and Ed Whalen has a, a method, and many conservatives actually are looking for um, uh, uh, justices who actually have a way of thinking about constitutional law and doing it. And the liberals, many of them, have rejected the idea of method and instead you know, focused much more on the life experience. Um, I'm a wise Latina, um, I'm uh, a, a, a the first in this demographic category or in that demographic category. And I myself think it's a bit of a mistake. Um, but if you think that there's no, there's no such thing as law, it's actually just the, the personality of um, uh, the jurist, then you're going to be very interested in their personality and um, their life experiences that may have influenced their their personality. But if, like me, you, you think that there's actually um, a law there to be found, there's there are better and and worse methods of 
of doing a, a, a finding of the law of doing constitutional argumentation if you're influenced by that part of Charles um, Black's contribution as well as his own autobiography and life story, um, you're you're maybe going to be um, less um, focused just on pure biography and and more interested in um, uh, judicial philosophy. Do you think that the now this wasn't always true of Democrats or the left, right? Because you know you, you come back many times to Hugo Black having a a method, for example, and certainly on the left in the Warren Court. Yes, you talked yes. about their, you know, they actually had a theory to what they did, and it wasn't. And and John Hart Ely, you know, mounts a defense of the Warren Court that's based on a theory. So it wasn't. It's not. It's not intrinsic to being progressive that yeah. one lacks a theory. I mean, the only thing that I can think of is that so much of the the discussion and the debate and the passion that surrounded the Democrats' uh, thinking on the Supreme Court is wrapped up with Roe versus Wade, which is not a case that really begs for deep theory. And I think the modern Democratic Party is very much focused on demographic representativeness. Mm. Um, and, and you heard um, a, a, a very strong... Um, defense Walter Dellinger made the case Walter for Dellinger, right. Yeah. right, about looking like America, mm-hmm. looking like the country, um, and uh, the conservatives. I, look, I just came back from a Federal Society conference in which 600 people, conservatives, were talking a lot about method um, and, and not um, a demographic representativeness, but um, how, what's the right way to think about constitutional questions? Um, and you don't see that quite as much I'm um, uh, on the left today. I think one thing we need to talk about at some point, which we haven't talked about, you've praised the Federalist Society and the and the conservatives for their emphasis on method, but one might postulate that there's a little reverse engineering going on here. Um, you know, what, we want this result. What method will, will produce this result consistently? So we'll, we definitely will have to talk about that and many other things in uh, future episodes. Stay tuned. Oh, and we're going to have to talk about Telford Taylor, um, who's another one of my heroes. Totally different um, uh, um, uh, genealogy um, than um, Charles Black. Charles Black and, and Walter Dellinger are on the Hugo Black side of the Supreme Court in Scorpion debate. Um, and Telford Taylor is a Felix Frankfurt protege, so stay tuned. Yeah, I think that uh, in this episode, I think even more than, than the Walter Dellinger episode, it's very, very interesting to look at these, these role models of yours. Walter Dellinger, uh, you did not spend a lot of time in person with. You said you may never have even had a meal with him. And yet his personality and his, you know, his diverse service uh, inspired you in many ways, his kindness um, and so forth. Charles Bell, or Charles Black, rather. Um, instead, it's uh, perhaps a little more the the beauty of the writing, yes. the uh, the coherence of the thought, the uh, the significance of the legal contribution, and also the um, the tree that he spawned with uh, with the people that be, that were disciples of his that 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 further inspired you. So different mm-hmm. ways that people can be role models and. Next time, uh, you know, Telford Taylor's uh, will have his own story as he interacts with Professor Moore. 
<laughs> so until then. Okay.